Thanks, Jenny. I love that. Um, one thing that you said was, uh, it's funny, it was a coincidence because we were, we were spending time with students this morning. We were listening to uh, Dr. Danny Hinton talk to us, and he said something at the end of it. He said, never again will I allow someone that's in my inner circle not understand the Bible again. And so what, what she was saying of never again will I not share what I just learned. It's for me and it's for others uh, to, to give to them. And so I encourage you guys, as you guys take notes at church, Never again allow that note to go unspoken to somebody else and, and share what you're learning. I, I'm a big discipleship person, and uh, basically I, I think it's like the greatest thing in the entire world. Uh, if, you don't, if you're not in a discipleship relationship, you got you to get in one. It, it's the best thing in the entire world. And, uh, and because of that, though, because of that, I've been able to take what I know at church and what I learn at church and immediately, it's, it's my discipleship lesson for the week because I'm like, man, what am I going to teach this person? I just learned something. Let's, let's reteach it to this person. And wow, what an amazing thing it is to learn something and then have to spend a few days studying what I learned on Sunday so that I felt equipped enough to reteach it to someone else and then to ask them to say, hey, you take notes on this and you spend some days studying this and you should pray about who you're going to reteach it to later. And it, it is the greatest thing. We're in a, a, a series right now of what does it look like to be better together. And as we think about what it looks like to be better together, I want you to keep in the, in the back of your mind this discipleship focus. Because being better together is great. But what are we learning and who are we teaching it to? Bob, Bob has been talking about that the last few weeks. You guys, we uh, recently have learned what it means to have hesed community, agape community, joy-filled, love-filled, steadfast community. And today, everything we're going to be talking about is filtered through that lens. What does it look like for that community, ho hopefully it's the church community, what does it look like for that community to now shape our group identity. Now, when I talk about identity, you guys have probably heard it from the perspective in church of what is my identity in Christ? That's typically what the church is going to say. What is personally, what, am, what are my Christ-like attributes? When we talk about identity, we're talking about things that are going to identify me by characteristics. Does that make sense? So uh, Jim might look at me and he might say, man, David is kind of a bully. He's kind of mean. Like, I'm just kidding. Uh, but Whatever my characteristics are, right, like David, David gets excited really easily. That, that's going to identify me. So in the community, when the church thinks about Community Bible Church Ventura, what are the identifying characteristics that they think about when they think about us? And that's what, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to find out what Jesus and Peter and Paul have to say about creating this group identity. Now, it's not as foreign of a concept as you guys think. Have you guys ever heard of the golden rule? Okay, like four of you. Who's heard of the golden rule? Come on, we're the family in here. I need a little interaction. Uh, the students are laughing up there because all morning I say, this is interactive, and none of them speak. Um, <laughs> so everyone's heard of the golden rule at some point. We, uh, how many of you guys in school had to repeat the golden rule until you just memorized it? I, I, I had to repeat it almost every day. It was almost like the Pledge of Allegiance in my school. Like you would, in, in elementary school, you would say the Pledge of, this is back when you were allowed to say the Pledge of Allegiance in school. You, were, you said the Pledge of Allegiance, and then they'd say, okay, what's the golden rule? Treat others the way you want to be treated. Did you know something, though? There were still bullies. It was incredible. 
It, I, I didn't understand it. I was so thrown away by that, that the head knowledge of treating others the way I want to be treated didn't transcend for some people, didn't move from their head to their heart. What happens as Christians when we hold information here and it never moves to our heart? Does our identity reflect that of Christ or is it that of our old self? So as we think about group identity, I want us to think through that. We, we all have identifying characteristics as Christians that are hopefully rooted in this amazing collection of books that we call the Bible. Hopefully every, every word of the Bible is able to shape our identity. Oftentimes, though, we see that our group identity isn't shaped by the Bible, and that's where you hear sometimes the feedback from other people of like, why would I become a Christian? Because I'm just as good without it. I, I, I'm a good person, and I don't have Christ, and in fact, I know a lot of Christ followers who are way worse to other people than I am. I would say oftentimes it's because that Christian hasn't moved from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. What they're learning, what now do I know, doesn't transcend to how now do I live, and so we get to this place of speaking about group identity, and we have to pause and sit there and say, well, how, how does that happen? I think in order to make it happen, we need to really back up. We need to back up, and we need to understand what happens when we first accept Christ. If you guys aren't in here and you're not a Christian yet, did you know that you can accept Christ just through faith? It's faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone that leads you to a salvific relationship and you can spend eternity with the Father. You are reconciled right that moment. That's it. What now do you know? How now do you live? If you are asking yourself that question, I hope that you just became a Christian because the Bible speaks to this moment of through faith in Christ, by grace, I become a Christian. What happens then? We're going through this uh, doctrine series with our students, and I think some of them probably zone out. They probably are not super happy that we're going through it, but I love it. They're all laughing up in the balcony. <laughs> I love it because I think it is so important to see how what this informs our beliefs. Now, how do those beliefs inform our actions? And, we, and sometimes we have this gap in church. I've known Christians who have been Christians for 20 years, and they know their Bible so well, but they don't live it. They don't live it. And so you, you look at their life over that 20 years, and it's like, wow, I feel like it should be like, man, your home should be overflowing with people who are just coming and, and having their needs met physically, emotionally, spiritually. And, and man, you, like, I don't even think that you go to church anymore. Like, you're so, so distanced from it because it hasn't transcended from your head to your heart. And so we get to this place where we can accept Christ, and we're saved. That's it. You're, you're, you're saved. But there's something that happens when you get saved. It's called the doctrine of regeneration. Do you guys remember hearing in your Bibles, uh, you are made new. You can put on your new self. You can put on Christ. We illustrate it in church by baptism. You're ducked under the water. Your old self is now dead. You're now brought to new life. We, that's how we illustrate it. It happens immediately. It's not a choice you make. You made the choice to follow Christ, immediately regenerated into a new self. Immediately regenerate into your new self. You guys, if you guys are taking notes, I leave a big blank section there because I don't want to tell you guys what notes to fill in. I think that you guys are active listeners and are going to fill in full pages of notes. So it's blank on purpose. It's blank on purpose. The doctrine of regeneration can be defined as this it's the divine action. So it's a God action by which God renews us as fallen creation so that we now reflect 
his character. Y'all remember reading Genesis 1 and 2? And we were created in the image of God. And then remember the next page? We distorted the image forever. When you're renewed, you now get to be in a better reflection. And we're going to talk about how you can increase that. But you're putting the mirror back together, right? You, dis- you broke this mirror, so now you look at it and you're distorted and then you, you accept Christ, and he has made you new again. When we're made new, we're infants in this. And so we have to go into this process that we're going to get into in a minute called sanctification. Here's, here's the thing about regeneration, though. John, when he writes chapter 3, verse 3, he talks about it as a birth from above, a new birth from above. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He talks about it as literally a new creation. So when we think about it for ourselves and we accept Christ, it's a big decision. It's a big decision. It can't be taken lightly because you're saying, I am now dead and I'm going to become new. I'm going to have an entirely new life. I'm going to get rid of my old and put on my new self every single day. Now here's, here's the thing. Regeneration happens immediately. It's a divine act that we don't get to act upon. Here's the deal, though. Sometimes we as Christians, we accept salvation, and then we just stop. And we get real stagnant, and we just stop. Regeneration, out of the regeneration, flows this doctrine called sanctification. Sanctification. Out of regeneration flows this Doctrine of sanctification. If you guys are taking notes, I'm sorry, I didn't reference where you put on your new self. It's Romans 13, 14, and it's Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. Um, you're putting on your new self, you're putting on your new flesh every single day. So out of regeneration flows into sanctification. Flows into sanctification. If you guys know what sanctification is, it's basically like I'm made new, and now I'm slowly walking with God to holiness. I'm not going to get there until I hit glorification And meet Jesus face to face. But I'm in process. I'm in process. I'm slowly moving forward. This is how sanctification can be defined. It's an ongoing supernatural work of God. It rescues justified sinners from the disease of sin to conform them into the image of his son. That image is holy. It is Christ-like. It's righteous. And it is empowered through the Holy Spirit to now do good works. Some of you guys' like antennas went up and you're like, good works? No, this guy's heresy. You don't, you're not saved through good works. That is total blasphemy. And, whoa, 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 slow down. You're not saved through good works. No. You're not saved through good works. You are saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. You're saved. You're made new. As a new creation, what happens when your baby turns into a toddler? They're like one, two. They start to walk. They start to walk, and they start growing up. And eventually, they'll hit like two and a half, and they won't really be super coordinated. Maybe three. They won't be super coordinated, but they'll try to start running, and they fall all the time. Isn't it great that God made our bones kind of rubbery when we're at that age? Because, like, man, we should have a lot of broken bones. Sanctification is now we're starting to walk. We're starting to look more like Christ every single day because we're now learning from his word, 
and allowing that to change who we are. We're putting the pieces of the mirror slowly back together to be every day more Christ-like. Now, this definition is, is so incredible. This is by a gal named uh, Suzanne Calhoun. Suzanne Calhoun wrote this uh, in, in a book called The Lexham Survey of Theology. She says, sanctification isn't simply ethical conformity, which I think is sometimes what we think about. Like, my old self was bad. I made bad moral decisions. And so I'm going to put on this new self, and what that means is more morally right decisions. But that's not all of godliness. Morally right decisions are a part of it, sure. But that's not godliness. This is what she goes on to say. She says, it's not simply ethical conformity, but it's the conformity of one's entire life into the image of God. She says that sanctification is the natural application of justification. Justification is when you got saved. You've been justified through grace. Sanctification is now applying that justification to your everyday life. She goes on and she says this. Sanctification is the natural application of justification. Those who have been declared holy by God. So here's the deal. If someone uh, accepts Christ on their deathbed, they go to heaven. But they didn't sanctify themselves beforehand. God declares you holy immediately. You are now made right before the Father. If you have an opportunity to accept Christ and live a Christian life, and it's not on your deathbed that you accept him, you enter into sanctification. It is the natural application of justification. She goes on. Those who have been declared holy are now made holy. And then she says this. It's the natural development of regeneration. So I got saved. I'm immediately regenerated. Now I'm being sanctified. I'm applying my justification back here. And now it is the natural implication of regeneration. Now that I am a new self, I'm going to learn how to walk. Because I don't want to be a new self and have my butt wiped all day long. I want to be a new self and I want to be able to do it myself one day. So I don't want to be babied anymore. I want to grow up in my maturity in Christ. I want to grow in my spiritual maturity. And that's sanctification. It's the natural application the natural development of regeneration. This is, this is awesome. She goes on and she says, it's those who receive new life and now out, they live out this life as they grow in Christ. Then she goes on and she says, it's the natural implication. This lady's smart and she knows how to put words together. It's the natural implication of our adoption from Christ. We're now children of God. The implication of that is that children imitate their parents. Do your kids kind of behave like you do? Probably. Do they kind of talk like you do? Probably. So when you're adopted, you're an adopted child of Christ, you're going to imitate your new father. It's no longer my parents that are my parents because I've been adopted into a new family. I'm a new self. I'm a new creation. I'm putting it on every single day. It is my adoption that causes me to imitate. In order for me to imitate the father, I need to walk with him daily. In order for me to imitate my father, I need to hear him speak all the time. In order for me to imitate my father, I can't just listen to what he says. I have to obey it. I have to obey what he says because if I just start doing what I want to do, I'm not putting on a new self. I'm my old self. That's just me. Students up there are feeling called out because they're like, man, I disobey my parents all the time. Stop. 
Stop disobeying your parents. As Christians, though, we need to stop disobeying God. He's our new father in my new self. I get to put on Christ every single day. This is what John 15, 5 says. You guys are probably like, David, give me some Bible. This is all just made up stuff. Give me some Bible. John 15, 5 says this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. It's not the fruit that caused you to be my disciples. It's the fruit that proved you to be my disciples. Romans 7, 4 says this, likewise, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. I do belong to another. I'm the Father's child. So that you may belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order, somebody please ask me, why? To bear fruit for God. Our identity should be noticed through our characteristics of how we live. Give me some more. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give me some more. James says this. James is so harsh about this. This is the harshest letter of this. He says this. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? James is calling us out. I sit here all the time and I sit there and I'm like, man, I, I get to pastor students and, and I don't have it worked out all the time. I get to pastor students and, and I sit here and I'm like, goodness, I'm selfish. Goodness, I don't take care of the temple that the Holy Spirit lives in all the time. I make mistakes. And I sit here and I'm like, what would people say about my life? Would they be able to look at my life and say, I know he's a Christian by what he's done? Or would they look at my life and they say, man, you were really mean. What about those moments? We were listening, I was listening to a, a sermon a few weeks ago and uh, this pastor was talking about how somebody was like, hey, man, I know you're a good husband. It's somebody he just met like 15 minutes earlier. Man, I can tell you're a good husband. He's like, how? And he said, well, because it seems like you treat your wife really well. In the 15 minutes I've seen you, you've, you've spoken so well to her. He said, what if I had a bad 15? What if I had a bad 15 minute, minutes? Am I bad to my, hus or my wife? Am I, am I a bad person then? He's like, you don't know if I'm a good husband, man. He's like, I've been married 38 years what if I had a bad 15 minutes? What I'm telling you guys is, look, we're still going to have bad 15 minutes because we're toddlers and we're growing up. And until you're fully glorified, you're going to keep making mistakes. How many of you guys know that as you've gotten older, you have not gotten perfect? It's a crazy thing. Yeah, it's a crazy thing. You haven't gotten perfect, but you've gotten better. You've gotten better. Every day. I guarantee you look at some, some of these kids that are younger and you're like, I wouldn't do that. And then you're like, I was 16 once and I did that. And you sit there and you're like, but I've gotten better. That's what sanctification looks like. Becoming more Christ-like every single day. Galatians 6.2. You thought I was done with the Bible. Here we go. Galatians 6.2 says, bear another, one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is this culminating in? It's culminating in community. It's culminating in community. I, I've been a part of a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, like small groups and churches, and uh, one thing that is, is really difficult for anyone is sharing their burdens. It's, it's kind of the worst. You feel like family, yet you hide a huge portion of your life because we want to assume, we want to present, not assume, we want to present the best side of us. 
And so oftentimes we hide our old self. We hide this, this thing that we're still struggling with, with our family, with this group that we have chosen to have joy-filled, love-filled community with, and in doing so, we're unable to fulfill Galatians 6.2. We're not able to bear another, one another's burdens. And so as we sanctify in our Christ-likeness, as we grow in our Christ-likeness, we get to this position where we sit here and we're like, okay, what am I learning? How is it impacting every single day life? It requires faith and it requires obedience. So you guys have to be asking. You're like, okay, David, you talked a lot about being saved. That's cool. Faith alone through grace alone and Christ alone. Awesome. Then you talked about what happens immediately when that goes on. I'm regenerated. I am made new. I put on a new self. I put on Christ. I'm made new. That leads to adoption, it leads to all these things. And it starts the process of sanctification where I'm learning how to walk. I'm putting the pieces back together in order to imitate the character of Christ, my father. And so you guys are probably like, okay, so what? How? How do I do this? And that's when we finally get to good works. I had to preface it because I didn't want to get ran out of this church. When we talk about good works in a Christian context, we're not talking about works that you can do on your own. That's not good works. When we talk about good works as from the Bible, we're talking about things that set you apart as a distinct people group that is God's. That is good works. So when people come to me and they say, why would I become a Christian? I'm just as good without Christ. No, you're not. You're as good as a sinful human being can be without Christ. You, you nothing. To Christ, you can never do enough good works nor as excellent of good works in order to reach Christ. You can't. It's impossible. Therefore, we need to submit ourselves and say, okay, it is only Christ through me that allows me to do godly works. Good works refer to human actions undertaken in direct obedience to God and his will and conformity with his will. Outside of that, that's just what you want to do. It's just what you want to do. And it's not bad. I'm not saying like the person walking down the street, like just like high-fiving people, seeing how their day is going is a bad person. They're probably a good person. They're just not making godly good works unless they're doing it in direct obedience to God and conformity to his will. This is what Luther uh, talks about. Martin Luther, we're about to celebrate like 500 and whatever, 500, like five years of Reformation. He's the guy who nailed the 95 Theses. We, we learned about him oftentimes in our history classes. Even though he's a Christian, we still learned about him in history classes. Amen. That is super exciting. He reads the book of Galatians, and Luther says this about good works. He says, regarding good works as the fruit of faith, he regards good works as the fruit of faith rather than the necessary form of faith. What he's making a distinction here is he's distinguishing that good works aren't what's going to get you right with God. It's not. It is the necessary, uh, good works are the fruit of that relationship with God. This is why he goes on, he says, while Protestant theology regards good works as praiseworthy and even necessary to the Christian life lived in the spirit, it doesn't consider them to be, Protestant theology doesn't consider that to be a condition for eternal life. It's faith alone and not works is the formal cause of salvation. Luther goes on in this treatise, which is called The Freedom of a Christian. I encourage you guys to read it. Portrays good works as an acts which Christians should be expected to undertake, albeit only out of spontaneous 
love in obedience to God. It's not something where I just woke up one morning and I'm like, better go do some good stuff today. It should be a spontaneous obedience out of a love for God that produces these fruits. This is what it looks like in Scripture. We go to the Old Testament and we look in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. It says, it says that the reason that the Israelites were a distinct people group from the desert tribes was because they were known as God's people. Are we known as God's people when we're out in our communities? In the New Testament, this, this conformity to being Christ-like is a direct, direct link to knowing that you're a Christian. In the New Testament, it says this. In uh, James 2.26, we already talked about faith without works is dead. But Paul also talks about it in Galatians 5.23 and 1 Thessalonians 4.7-8. A holy lifestyle is likewise expected of the church. It's most forcibly seen in James, but it's further seen in Paul's letters over and over and over again. He's correcting false doctrine because it creates false living, and false living is what a non-believer sees. They don't show up to church to see what you're learning. They see your life first and then ask what you know because they see how you live. That is the exact pattern of Christians for all the ages. That's why the attack on the church right now from non-believers is so magnificently high, because most Christians are no longer living out a Christ-like faith, myself included sometimes, because I'm not perfect. I'm in process. I'm in process, in the sanctification process. So you guys are probably sitting there. You're like, okay, I got it. Faith alone in Christ alone through grace alone saves me. I'm made new. I'm regenerated. Made new, put on a new self, put on Christ. I begin taking crawling steps, then I can walk, and now I can maybe run a little bit. I'm growing in my spiritual maturity, becoming more Christ-like every single day. And then I get to this place where that knowledge of God has moved from my head to my heart, and I'm doing works out of spontaneous love for God and complete obedience to him, which should show someone on the outside that my identity is one that is godly. When we talk about godliness, when we talk about the doctrine of godliness, we look to Titus 1.1 who says that the knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. It ain't just a, it ain't just a knowledge of the truth. It's a knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. I had a conversation with someone last week about what spiritual maturity was. This, this person said, I know a lot about scripture, so I think I'm pretty spiritually mature. I said, not if you don't live it out. Not if you don't live it out, you're not spiritually mature. You're as mature as the infant. That's, like, that's, where, you're, that's where you're at if you don't live, if it doesn't move from here to here so you start moving your feet for Christ, right? It should lead to godliness, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, and a godly sorrow, that can lead to salvation. Peter declares this in 2 Peter 1.3. He says, God's divine power has given us everything we need for life, Get, catch this, for life and godliness through what? Our knowledge of him. It moves from here to here. So we start moving our feet for him. God imparts knowledge of himself by revealing his son. Totally when he comes to earth and lives with us, incarnate, 
We get to see what a godly life looks like perfectly with a human Jesus who is fully God, fully human, and we get to watch his life and have a model of godliness for 33 years. John 9.31 says this, that we know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. The shape of obedience is then clarified. It's clarified in 1 Timothy 6.11, which says this, You, man of God, you Christian, you should pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. It goes on, it says, you should make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and then to goodness, knowledge, and then to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, in 2 Peter 1, 5 to 7. Which he goes on in the very next verse to say that knowledge of, uh, that all of this leads to us wanting a greater knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is incredible because it, it teaches us all the time that if we start with here going into our head, that's cool. That's the starting place. I need the word of God to transform my heart, but it should transform my heart. I should start walking with Christ, and as I walk with Christ, I turn back to here and I say, Christ, what else? What else? This is what it looks like for you guys practically. I was meeting with a disciple this week, uh, this last week, and I asked them to read Genesis 1 through 9 and 11. I asked them to read Genesis. I told them skip 10. It's a genealogy. Uh, read 1 through 9 and 11 and do it in one sitting. I don't want you to read it throughout the week. I want you to do it in one sitting because I want you to hear the story, the drama of Scripture unfolding before your eyes. He came and met with me, and it was fresh on his mind. He did it that day. Go procrastination. Uh, he did it that day. It was super fresh on his mind, and, and he came in, and I asked him, okay, if I was to ask you what the four major things are in that section, what are they? He said, oh, well, God created the world. Sin entered the world. Consequence for all of that was the flood. There was a restart of the world, and then there's a Tower of Babel. And I was like, that's great, man. You, maybe you should procrastinate more. That was really excellent. And he, he told me these four things. I said, okay, let's just focus on creation. You read Genesis 1 to 2. What did you learn about God? And he sat there, he's like, I don't, I don't know, I didn't really think about that. I learned about, like, what God did. That's what scripture, I was like, I don't want you to regurgitate scripture to me. That's not what I want. I want you to tell me what attributes of God did you learn? He said, oh, God's powerful. God can do anything he wants. He went on, he said that, I am created in God's image. I learned that. I said, awesome, how did you feel about that, and how do you feel you're doing in regard to it? And he was like, well, what do you mean, how did I feel about it? He's like, I felt small and inadequate to an all-powerful God, and he's like, he's like, but you know what? One thing that uh, stood out to me was, I don't know if I'm stewarding my Christ-like image in the world. I don't know if I'm stewarding it. I don't know if I'm living godliness out. His words, it was crazy. It just worked really well with the sermon. <laughs> I love that. I don't know if I'm living this godliness out, and I said, how are you going to do that? How are you going to live it out? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to have a plan to actually do it. So you could do a number of things. You could do a ton of things to live out godliness in your life. What's one? And he's like, well, I think I need to show up to family dinners more often. I'm not showing up to family dinners because I'm procrastinating on homework. No, no procrastination. It was good this time. It was bad all the other times, apparently. 
I think I need to show up to family dinner. It's only once a week that we do a, a family where everyone's together. We know what time it's at. Everyone's going to come. I think we're going to do a family dinner. And I'm going to be there, and I'm going to stay the entire time until everyone leaves. My grandparents come over. And I was like, awesome. What do you need to do in order to make that happen? And he's like, well, I need to do my homework on time. How are you going to do your homework on time then in order to live a more godly life in relationship with your family? And he's like, well, I, I don't know. I guess I just got to do it. How? How are you going to do it? If you don't have a plan, you're not going to follow the plan. What, there's a saying about that. I don't even know what the saying is. It's like if you fail to, plan, fail to prepare, you prepare to fail. Got it. Um, <laughs> I wasn't planning on saying that. That just came. Uh, so I told him, have a plan. How are you doing your homework? When are you doing it? When is it assigned? When is it due? When are you going to sit down and do it? And he sat down, he created a plan. I said, great. Now as your disciple maker, I'm following up on that. This next week, if you didn't go to family dinner, I'm going to call your family and tell, you that, tell them that you need to sit down for dinner. And it's his fault if he fails the test. Because he told me that he's going to do his homework throughout the week so that he can be at family dinners. I don't care if he doesn't pass his class. I care that he is having the identity of godliness to his family. That's what I care about. The rest is on him. He's got to figure it out. You're going to sign up for a class. You've got to do it. You're going to have a job. You've got to show up. But you can't use that as an excuse to not show up in godly ways. This is what I want you guys to think about. As you guys go home and you're like, okay, man, I don't know the last time I read Genesis 1 to 2. And, like, I don't know if, like, that really changed my heart. We've got to remember 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, that all of God's word is breathed out by him. All scripture is God-breathed. It's all profitable for teaching and rebuke and training and reproof so that every believer may be fully equipped for every good work. It's not just the New Testament that we look at. It's not. I think sometimes we fail to get godliness out of the Old Testament because we get bogged down by all that's happening. When was the last time we read Leviticus? I'm in Leviticus. I just finished reading Leviticus right now. It's gross. First of all, don't read Leviticus. I'm just kidding. It's just, I sat down. I was reading Leviticus. This is disgusting. And then I sat down. I was like, how am I now going to live because of what I just read? How now shall I live after reading this? It's gross. There's a lot of gross parts in there. There is. How now am I going to live because of it? What am I going to think about when I think about Reading this, how am I going to know God better from this? How am I going to know the depravity of sinfulness better from this? How am I going to put myself into this book and understand how now I should live? This is what I want you guys to do. I want you guys, if you haven't taken notes yet, I want you to write these three things down. Super, super simple. They're not points. They're action steps. Write down, this week I want you to sit down. I want you to read Matthew 5 to 7 in one sitting. It should only take about 10 minutes. We all got 10 minutes, I promise. Matthew 5 to 7. If you finish reading it and you can't answer the questions of what did I learn about God? What did I learn about people? What did I learn in general? What did I learn about the people's responses to what Jesus is saying here? What did I feel as I was reading here? Then reread it. There's no due date on this assignment. Reread it. Keep rereading it. Keep rereading it until you can get to a point of this is what I learned. How am I going to live? You're going to finish the question with what is the way I can live now in reading this? And that might look like, you know, sometimes I might, I might read something. I might, okay, when uh, 
I go to a restaurant, I'm a practice patience with the waitress. When I go to, uh, I don't know, to the bank, and the person in front of me is pulling out $3 trillion, it seems like, I'm going to sit there and I'm going to exercise patience and not be irritated. This is going to be my Christian identity so that other people can see that I'm a Christ follower. And so I want you to do that with, with Matthew 5 to 7, but also with Ephesians 5. Also with Ephesians 5. Sit down. Ask yourself these questions. Ultimately, you're asking only two questions. What now do I know? How now do I live? What now do I know and how now do I live? I could have sat here and I could have told you what a Christian's identity is. But there's nothing better than the word of God to tell you that. What I want to tell you is to spend time in the word of God. To allow the knowledge of God to lead to a life of godliness because this is the one thing that will change your life. Nothing that Bob or I say or, or Ron or anyone else. We're not going to say anything that's so profound that this doesn't trump. This week, spend time in this. I guarantee all of you guys, if you read that this week, you guys are probably going to come up with a godly characteristic that's probably identical to one another of how it actually lives out in your life. That's group identity. When you're in a joy-filled community and you're able to have that relationship like I do with my disciple, and I'm, I, I talk to them, I'm like, hey, I'm going to keep you accountable to this godly walk that you're on. I encourage you, if you don't have that in this church, get that in this church. Find somebody. Ask somebody. Say, hey, I don't even know you, but do you want to get to know each other because I need someone to help me in my walk with godliness? And guess what? They might say no, and that's okay. It's okay. Or you might hang out with them for three weeks, and you're like, I don't like this person. I don't get along. Find someone else. They're not going to be offended. They probably don't like you either. And so you're sitting there, right? We need to ask people to have that seat in our life so that we can walk a life of godliness because that is what we want Ventura County to see. We want them to meet you or see you and have to ask the question of why are you different? And you can point them to Galatians 5 and say, because the Holy Spirit has given me fruits that I'm able to use in my community. And guess what? A lot of time allowing Christ to soften my heart enough so I get out of the way so that his fruits are evident in my life. It all comes from God. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I'm going to just close with this, you guys. This, this life of godliness isn't supposed to be lived independent. It's not. You ha I, I don't, if you're introverted, just find one person. If you're introverted, maybe, I'm just kidding, don't raise your hand. They're like, I would never, I would never. Find somebody to pour into your life, at least on a weekly basis. It's an extra burden, I get it. I get it, it's an extra burden, but it is the right burden to have. It's the right burden to have. It's eventually, once you guys start liking each other, it's gonna turn into no burden. It's going to be your favorite part of the week because they've become more than just accountability. They've become a friend. They become more than accountability. They become a brother or a sister. You're going to be able to see their Christ-likeness in their life, and you're going to be able to say, okay, that's what it looks like. This is what I don't have. That's what I want to have. That's a Christian walk. 
as we are all on this process of sanctification, we need to ask ourselves the question, what now do I know? How now do I live? What now do I know? How now do I live? I really, really pray that you guys spend time asking that this week in those, in those chapters, Matthew 5 to 7, Ephesians 5. What now do I know? How now do I live? And if you're having a hard time with it, call me, email me, text me. I promise Audrey will get back to, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You guys, can we pray um, and just spend some time reflecting on our own life in this? Have I, have I done well in this? Or, man, am I sitting here feeling really convicted and I need to start now? Let's reflect. Uh, Jesus, I just thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is so powerful to transform. I thank you for salvation and making me new again. I thank you, Lord, that you are the one who walks with me as I seek to live out a life that is image-bearing of you, that is Christ-like in nature, that is full of your character. Lord, I love you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Y'all said? Amen.